0: Maybe you think of words like loving, merciful, all-knowing, sovereign, in control. But one word that you probably don't think of when you think of who God is is the word jealous, right? And yet God describes himself in the scriptures as jealous. He says, I am a jealous God. And so that's what we want to talk about today, this idea of God being jealous and what exactly is is he jealous about? Um, Last week we began our series looking at the uh, Ten Commandments, and we called this series, As for Me and My House. Now the reason for that title is because I want us to approach the Ten Commandments not as some principles out here that really don't connect with our daily life, but rather to think of, as for me and my house, we will have no other gods before him. As for me and my house, we will not take God's name in vain. As for me and my house, We will honor the Sabbath and so on and so forth. And so we can begin to see these principles, these commandments that God gives as very practical for our marriages, very practical for the rearing of our children, that sort of thing. Also last week we covered the first of these commandments. Let me read it to you. Exodus chapter 20 verses 2 through 3 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Now what God's saying in that first commandment is that he wants to be the exclusive God of Israel, that he wants to have no other gods, uh than to will be worshiping no other gods but the God of the Bible. And so God demands, we saw last week, for us to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and our strength, and that we enthrone him as the supreme authority for our life, and that we make as the mantra of our lives the statement Uh, Not my will, but yours be done. We say, God, whatever you want, I'm here to execute on your behalf. I'm here, I exist for you and for your pleasure, for your glory. Putting no other gods before him. Today we want to move on to commandment number number two. And if you brought a Bible, you can flip over to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And we'll be reading uh, the next, the second of the commandments, Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 4. So, as is our custom, I'm going to ask if you would to stand. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 20, we will read verses 4, 5, and 6. Let's go ahead and uh, start here, verse 4. Here we go. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You may be seated. Thank you so much. What I want to do is just to walk through these couple of verses here. Uh, chapter verse four begins: You shall not make for yourself an image of anything in heaven above, or on the earth below, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, commandment number one and commandment number two are kind of like bosom buddies. I mean, these are blood brothers. They belong right close together. One of them is kind of emphasizing the positive. The other is emphasizing the negative. Commandment number one emphasizes the positive. It says that we should have no other gods before God and so that's like hey affirm me pursue me God's saying and the second says that we should have no idols we shouldn't bow down to and so God's given a kind of a do not over here kind of thing the other he's saying come to me one he's saying don't go over there and do that because I want you to come to me so both of them kind of two sides of the same coin Um, we should understand something though that idolatry has been a problem ever since the human race first began And let me tell you why. The reason is that every man, woman, and child born on the earth was born to worship something. Anthropologists tell us that of all the societies in the world, civilized or not, every last one of them has had some sort of God that they worship. And the reason for this is that God has put a worship gene inside of us as human beings, that God has hardwired us with an instinctive drive to want to worship something that is higher or that is greater than ourselves. It's just something that's built inside of us. And this is simply part of the human psyche. This is part of what it means to be a human being, to want to worship something higher or greater than ourselves. You say, well, Gordon, that's good, right? Right. I mean, God has this, we're hardwired to want to worship something, so that's a good thing, right? Well, yeah, it is, it is, but there's also a problem. And the problem is that unsaved man, that unregenerate human beings that have not come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, people outside of a relationship with him, these folks cannot worship in spirit and truth the living God of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, We are dead in our transgressions and sins. That is, we are alienated from God, separated from God, disconnected from God. That's what that verse is talking about there. And, folks, this is the kind of condition that is uh, uh, prevalent amongst those who don't have a relationship with God, and and it disenables us to be able to worship the God of the Bible. But remember what we said. It said that man needs something to worship, and this has been consistent all through human history. Man needs something to worship, and so unregenerate man finds something else to worship besides the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, something other than the true and living God, something that he can touch, something that he can feel, something that's tangible, something that he can bow down to. And so he makes that thing, priority number one, focus number one in his life. And friends, this is the dynamic that causes every single society, that causes every single culture, that causes every single person of every strata of society who is outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ to sink into idolatry. It's this need inside of us to worship something greater than ourselves, and so people do that. They find something to worship. Now, in ancient times, these idols were physical, tangible. You could touch them idols, right? The Egyptians, for example, worshipped statues of what looked like a human being until you got to the neck, and then they'd have an animal head on top of this this being, and they worshipped these as their gods. The Mayans, for example, worshipped these uh, horrific-looking masks that people would walk around on, and they would worship the masks and say that inhabited in the masks were their gods. The, The Greeks and the Romans had a whole pantheon of gods, and their gods didn't look like the Egyptian gods. Rather, they looked like human beings, just like you and I, but in their pantheon of gods, they taught that these gods had great powers, that they were different substance than you and I, and they worshipped these other gods. Uh, Well, we don't have those kind of gods today, but we still have idols. They may not be statues or grotesque masks, but we still have idols. And our idols today are much more subtle than the ones that perhaps the Greeks used or that the Mayans used or that the Egyptians used. And you know what some of these are. For example, money is an idol. In a New York Times article uh, recently, it said that 60 of the wealthiest people on the planet only gave 1.4% of their wealth away every year. I mean, 1.4% of, I'm guessing, billions. I mean, really? I mean, I know that's a big number, but good gracious. I mean, you got, you got tens of billions of dollars in your bank account and you're worried about 100 million that you gave away or whatever it is, right? And so the reason for this is that these people didn't, the reason why they didn't want to give away any of their money is because they had made money an idol. They worshiped it. They felt like they needed it. They needed to have as much of it around them as they could have. And so if people were to come up to us on the street today and they'd say, hey, you know what? You're an idolater. We would bristle at that, right? We'd take offense at that. We'd say, hey, look, I don't have a statue in my backyard. I don't, I don't have an altar in my house where we, make, we sacrifice animals and dance around the living room. I mean, we don't have anything like that going on. What are you talking about? I'm an idolater. Well, I love what one author said. There can be idolatry without physical statues or without physical idols. Whatever sets up a rivalry in our souls, whatever sets up a rivalry in our souls, which absorbs the love and devotion that belongs to God alone, this is a God. This is an idol. Anything that sets itself up as a rivalry to God as first priority in our life, this fellow is saying, becomes an idol. And that's consistent with Scripture. Now, in just a moment, we're going to ask our most important question. But before we get to that, I got one other question I need for us to ask, and that is that God condemns idolatry hundreds and literally hundreds and hundreds of times, all throughout Scripture. I mean, from the very get go, all the way to the end of the book, idolatry is constantly being condemned all through the book. And so, the question that I want to ask is why is God so strong on idolatry? What has He got? What? what Why is this such a big deal to God uh, that people are idolaters? Um. Well, look again. The answer to to that comes from uh, the commandment. Look again at verse five. It says, "You shall not bow down to them or worship them, your idols, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." God says again later in Exodus chapter thirty-four, verse fourteen. He says, "You shall worship no other gods but the Lord, whose name is jealous." I mean, God actually called Himself in the text jealous. He is a jealous. God, the text says. Friends, God is jealous when it comes to our love. He's jealous when it comes to our love. God is jealous when it comes to our devotion. He's jealous when it comes to our loyalty. And the reason being is that God looks at his relationship with you and himself like a marriage. And in this marriage, uh, if if one of the marriage partners were to go off and, and, and have a physical relationship with somebody else, we would call that adultery. And so God, just the same way, says, "Hey, look! When you put your affections, when you put your devotion towards something above me, you you usurp me and the the relationship that we have." God calls that spiritual adultery. Ezekiel chapter twenty-three and verse thirty-seven says this: "For with their idols, for with their idols, they have committed adultery." And this is why God hates adultery so. I'm sorry, hates idolatry so much. Because to him, it is adultery. It is a betrayal at the deepest level of his love, and God despises idolatry because of that. He views it like adultery, like like leaving him and going and showing your affections to someone else. So to summarize, the bottom line, y'all with me, right? Okay, I got to check in every week, right? The uh, The bottom line of commandment number two is that when it comes to our love and our devotion as followers of Jesus Christ, God wants no rivals, God wants no competitors, God wants no other suitors for our love in our life, but he and he alone. Okay, well that brings us to the point where we need to ask our most important question, and if you've been with us before, you know that question is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, okay, I get what you're saying, God doesn't like idolatry, but I mean, that's God's issue. That's not my issue. God's jealous. I mean, he's got a jealousy issue going on over here. I mean, what's that got to do with me? How's that help me get the kids off soccer practice? What's that have? What difference does any of this make to my life? Well, let's talk about that. You know, it's interesting what the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21. He writes, "Keep, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. And then the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 14 repeats these words. He says, "Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry." Now I want to remind you that these verses, flee from idolatry, keep yourselves from idols, were not written to non-believers. They were not written to people who had zero interest in Jesus. These were written to people who were in the church. These were written to people who had put, made a decision for Jesus Christ, who had experienced his forgiveness and the, and the, and the freedom from their sins. These were people just like you and me, followers of Christ. And so my point is that it is entirely possible for believers to be idolatrous. You follow my, my logic there? I mean, if, they were, if it's impossible for believers to be idolatrous, then what are they doing writing to believers, telling them to flee from idolatry, telling them to keep away from idols? The point is that even as believers, even as followers of Christ, we are susceptible to idolatry. So here's my question. What are some of the things that you and I as Christians, what are some of the most common areas where we commit idolatry? And so I want to give some of these to you. I've got three for you, okay? Number one, first area where we are prone to commit idolatry, number one, is the idol of family ties. The idol of family ties. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says these words. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. He said, that's not why I came. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Verse 35, for I have come to turn a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You say, well, what's Jesus talking about? Why would he say something like that, encouraging people, you know, turning fathers against sons, sons against fathers, and all this kind of stuff? What's he talking about? Well, there's evidence all through the Scriptures that when a son or a daughter were to put their faith in Christ, the family would disown them. There's evidence all through scriptures that when a daughter-in-law would put her faith in Christ, that the mother-in-law, or maybe switch it around, would disown that family member. And so Jesus says, hey, look, I've come into the world to have people follow me. I've come into the world to to find disciples. Um, And in doing so, I know what that's going to do to some of your family ties. And so here we see that we don't need to make an idol out of those family ties. You know, not a whole lot's changed in the last 2,000 years. Did you know that today in a Jewish family if a son or a daughter turns to Christ and puts their faith in Christ and enters into a relationship with Jesus that the parents literally hold a funeral for their child to declare that child dead to the family? Did you know that in many Muslim countries if if a son or a daughter was to turned toward Christ that the family would disown that son or daughter and that Some of the other siblings, if they find out, are prone to go and tell the clerics. And the next thing you know, there's people tracking that person down who's committed themselves to Christ, led by some of the family members to try and kill that one who's put their faith in Jesus. Did you know that Jehovah's Witnesses, when a person comes to Christ and leaves the Jehovah's Witnesses, that the rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses are instructed to never speak to that person again? I mean, husbands literally walk out on wives who have given their life to Christ. Parents literally disown children who, who who, give their life to Christ. Boyfriends break up with girlfriends who give their life to Christ. And in secular, non-believing parents have often said to their children when their children come to Christ, hey, if you want to throw your life away, that's on you, but I'll be no part of it. Uh, I'm not going to pay for it. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. I'm not going to support you to be a missionary. I'm not going to support you to go to school. Your life is now on you at your own. I'm not going to have anything to do with that anymore. Folks, this happens. Jesus said when you embrace him, it is likely to cause trouble in your family. Listen to what he said, Matthew chapter 10, and verse 37. He who loves father or mother or son or daughter, and may I add boyfriend or girlfriend, more than me, Is not worthy of me. He said, Don't you put your love for your family, which is a good thing, but don't put your love for your family ahead of him. That's his point. That's idol number one. Idol number two is the idol of worldly stuff. The idol of worldly stuff. 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John writes, verse 15, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and what he does comes not from the Father, but that comes from the world. That kind of perspective, those cravings come from the world. Notice how the Apostle John, though, did not say that we're not allowed to enjoy the things of the world. He said not to love the things of the world. Your Father in heaven is more than happy for you to enjoy the things of the world. He's not against us enjoying nice things, but God is against us promoting those things to a position in our life that usurps God as the first priority, as our first love. And as long as we don't turn those things into idols, God has no problem with us enjoying them. But our tendency as simple human beings is to love these things More than we love God. The writer of Proverbs writes these words. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 20. He says, the eyes of man are never satisfied. Some of you husbands just went like that, right? The eyes of man or woman are never satisfied. And this means that our sinful nature is in love with stuff. No matter how much of this world's stuff we have, we always want more stuff and we can make stuff into an idol. That's why no matter how nice your golf clubs are, you're always thinking about that next set, right? Or no matter how nice the house you live in, when you're driving down the road, you're thinking, boy, how nice it'd be to live in that house, right? Or you're always checking the market, see what's moving out there. Maybe there's something we would want to we'd want to be in. That's why no matter how nice our cars are, no matter how nice our clothes are, no matter how many pairs of shoes we have, We're always interested in getting a nicer car or more clothes or better furniture. And so we're always dreaming about those things, whether it's tools, whether it's collectibles, whether it's guns, whatever it is that we pursue as a passion of stuff, those things have a tendency to take God's place as our number one love in our life. And as human beings, we are hopelessly drawn, friends, stuff, And if the truth be told about us as human beings, if the truth be told, it's really the stuff that occupies the real love, the real passion, the real drive in many of our lives. And we wouldn't know how to live without them. And that's why they're an idol. And God says, hey, don't have any idols. Don't worship those things. Put nothing before me. A third idol that I point out is the idol of self. I'm going to ask you to flip over to Acts chapter 17, just one quick verse here. Acts chapter 17 and verse 7, Paul is um, with his missionary team and they've traveled to Thessalonica, uh, the city of Thessalonica on the north shore of the Aegean Sea, kind of right up there up above Greece. And um, Paul and his team have been traveling and so they've come to Thessalonica and here is a statement in Acts chapter 17 and verse 7 that is made by the Thessalonians themselves. It's an observation that they make of Paul and his missionary team. Okay, here's the statement. Acts chapter 17, verse 7. They, referring to Paul and his missionary friends, are all defying decrees. These are official decrees by the Roman government. And here's what they're here's what they're saying. They're saying that there is another king, and his name is Jesus. They're saying that there's another king one called Jesus. Now, it was very obvious to these people in Thessalonica that the Apostle Paul is saying that the king of the universe, the real king of the universe, is not the king of the Roman Empire, but that the real king of the universe is this guy named Jesus. And so our problem today is that everybody in the world sees themselves as Caesar. Everybody in the world sees themselves as the king of their own universe. That is That everyone in the world wants to run their own lives, wants to be their own boss, wants to call their own shots, wants to set their own morality, wants to set their own priorities for their life, and basically everyone, what that's saying is everybody wants to be in control of their own life. They don't want to have another king or some other Caesar that they have to answer to. In other words, idol number three, quite frankly, is the idol of self, the idol of self. We proclaim ourselves to be Caesars. We proclaim ourselves to be kings. We worship our talents and our successes and our fame and our kids and how proud we are for them of them. And then we stick our success all over the Internet for everybody else to see. And then we, because we want people to worship us. That's what we're doing. We worship our education. We worship our independence and our ability to scheme and to get what we want. And as the Apostle John called it, the boasting of what he has and does. Folks, we live in a world that is filled, that is madly in love with idol number three, that's madly in love with itself. People run around worshiping themselves. Our political leaders are madly in love with themselves. Many of our pastors are madly in love with themselves. Many of our community leaders are madly in love with themselves. And friends, if we're not careful, we will get caught up in all of that nonsense. That's all that it is. It is nonsense. Paul's response to that kind of thinking, we read it last week, Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Paul said, Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but rather use sober judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that we the people, need to insist that those words be engraved on every public government building across this country. We ought not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Basically saying what Paul's saying here is that you don't belong on the throne of your life, no matter how much success you have, no matter how smart you are, no matter how much fame you achieve, don't begin believing your own PR. Don't begin worshiping yourselves. Because when we worship ourselves, we begin worshiping a very puny God. That's, that's, that's the bottom line of it. Let me share a verse with you as we close. 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 9. It says these words, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. God's just up there. Now just looking around, ranging throughout all of the earth. And what is God scanning for? The verse tells us, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, looking for people whose hearts are fully committed to him. Looking for people whose hearts are fully committed to him. That is, God is looking for people who are passionately in love With him, they have put no other gods, no other idols before him. He's looking for people who want him first in their life, who have put no other rivals before him. And why does God look for these people? Well, again, the verse tells us that he might strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Wow. And you want God to strengthen you? Say, yeah, I'd love for God to strengthen me. Well, how does that happen? Does it happen by you walking around with your Jesus T-shirt on or going witnessing out in the street corner someplace or becoming a, a, a leader in your church or something like that? No, that's not at all what the verse says. The verse says, if you want God to strengthen you, then you put him first in your life. you be fully committed to him above all else. That's what he said. He's looking for people who are passionately in love with him above all others. So let's summarize. God said, don't worship idols. Why? Because God is a jealous God. He doesn't want rival lovers before him. And he wants to be the first love of our life. And what is God's promise that he makes to us if we put him first? God promises friends to strengthen you, to strengthen me, in our walk with Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we hear this today about how you are a jealous God, and we hear that you want no other rivals to yourself in our life. You want us to put nothing else before you. And Lord, if we're honest, we would have to confess that we are hopeless idolaters. And we constantly, Lord, are trying to usurp your rightful place in our life. And so, Lord, we just have to just, just admit it today. That perhaps you're not where you need to be. That you're in the mix, but that you're not number one. Lord, in these quiet moments of communion, may we just utter those words to you again. Not my will, but yours be done. I want you first, God, above all others. Lord, we just ask that you would put your finger on those places in our life where there are idols. And then we would just topple them one by one. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would stir and speak in our hearts in these quiet moments, we pray in Christ's holy name.